welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, why not check out our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Great. Good morning, everyone. Hello. It is lovely to be together this morning. And um, yeah, we're carrying on the sermon series on insights, finding hidden gems within the Bible. And as Becky said, we're doing Obadiah. Now, I was kind of thinking about this. I thought, if together the minor prophets were sort of like a club sandwich, this fascinating little book, which is actually the shortest in the Old Testament, would be like our butter. It's kind of rarely referenced. It's kind of small in quantity, but it's actually a pretty vital ingredient. I'm not going to stand here and pretend to you that before I was kind of asked to speak about Obadiah, I actually knew very much about it. Um, However, any time I'm trying to get my head around a passage of the Old Testament that's quite unfamiliar to me, I always start off by asking the Holy Spirit to sort of open my eyes and ears and heart and let him explain, really, what's going on. So let's just still our hearts before the Lord again. Holy Spirit, we invite you into the room, into our thoughts and understanding, and into the depths of who we are. I ask you to help me to say only what is from you this morning, and may you breathe on us, so that as we listen to your word, your message is clear. Amen. I've then got three questions that I tend to seek answers to so that the sort of passages are a bit unlocked and the words come to life to me a little bit. And they are, what was actually happening? Or what did the words mean then? What does it mean for me today? And also, where is Jesus in this passage? So, after the learning adventure that this led me on, today we're going to look at the book of Obadiah in three acts. Act one, their story. Act two, our story. And act three, his story. And yeah, I would really encourage everyone to sort of go back and read this maybe in the week if you get a chance. It's only little, um, but I'm not going to be able to read you every single verse this morning. So here is my 30-second sort of introduction of book of Obadiah. In the first 14 verses of this book, Obadiah addresses a group of people called the Edomites. He gives them a vision from God, which essentially says that because of their pride and the crimes against his people, they as a nation will be desolated until not one of them remains. In verse 15, he turns to everyone else, that includes us, and he warns the world that we must all face a reckoning for the evil things we've done. However, he ends by telling us, those who have been saved shall go up to Mount Zion. And finally, that the kingdom will be the Lord's. I didn't time that, so if it wasn't 30 seconds, I'm very sorry. Thank you. So, to really get our heads around what's going on here, we're actually going to wind the clock back around about one and a half thousand years before Obadiah was even written. Let's start with Act 1, their story. And in the spirit of good old-fashioned amateur dramatics, I've enlisted a couple of budding local thespians to help me with the first act. May I introduce to you all... Abraham. (laughs) This is our Abraham. (laughs) 
Now, Abraham is a man who ends up in the book of Hebrews, Hall of Faith. When he was a little bit younger, God gave him a promise. Hey, darling, there you go. Thank you. So, God says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, by the time Abraham here was 99 years old, which is a bit past your normal child having sell-by date, he and his wife Sarah had not yet conceived a child together. So when God changes Abraham's name to Abraham, which means father of many, you can kind of understand why Genesis 17, 17 tells us that Abe here laughs even as he prostrates himself before the Lord. And I love that image because I think it's such a wonderfully sort of human mixture of submitting to God, but also feeling pretty bemused at what you're hearing him say. However, Joshua 21.45 says, not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. And so true as he must always be to his word, God did gift Abraham and Sarah with a son, Isaac. Sorry, <laughs> holding a lot there, aren't you? <laughs> so Isaac went on to marry Rebecca, who gave birth to twin boys. First, Esau. On the edge, go on the bench. On the bench. <laughs> Thanks very much, Esau. <laughs> and then... Jacob. <laughs> Maybe not the same age in real life, but you know. <laughs> These lads took the phrase sibling rivalry to a whole new level. I would absolutely love to tell you their story because it is absolutely fascinating. But we don't really have the time because it takes many, many chapters in Genesis. So if you are interested, do delve in and, and have a look for yourselves because it's kind of amazing what happens. The shorthand version is that Esau, being the oldest, would have inherited the family's assets, land, responsibilities. This is known as a birthright. There you go. Got himself a birthright there. But one day, Jacob manages to convince him to swap this for a bowl of soup. I did not make that up. Unsurprisingly, Esau regrets this rash decision bitterly. <laughs> this is a feeling that is only compounded when Jacob later dupes their father into making him believe that he is Esau and so receives from him what would have been Esau's blessing. Esau is furious and so Jacob has to flee for his life and lie low at a relative's house for some years. He goes on to have 12 sons and is later known for actually wrestling with God until he receives God's blessing too. The angel of the Lord then renames Jacob Israel and his sons go on to father the 12 tri tribes of Israel. 
Meanwhile, Joshua 24.4 tells us that God gave the hill country of Seir to Esau and his descendants, which is referenced in Obadiah as Mount Esau. The hills in that country were made of red rock, so the land was called Edom. Like Esau, this means red. Obadiah, like all the prophets, uses sort of picture language to relay God's message. He particularly speaks about Jacob interchangeably with the nation of Israel and Esau interchangeably with the Edomite people group. Let's thank our wonderful helpers. (laughs) You can keep baby Isaac if you want. (laughs) Brilliant. Where's the... Yeah, she doesn't want the beard on. That's understandable. (laughs) Thanks very much, guys. Okay. So why does their story matter? Well, by this point, both families were growing and developing into the nations that God said they would become. The patterns of deceit and rage and pride between them were already well marked out. And in the end, true forgiveness, true reconciliation never came about between them. Obadiah talks about this metaphorically, but the Edomites actually did look down on Israel from their high cities in the mountain. Um, This is the ravine that you'd have to go through if you wanted to enter their dwelling place. And at some points, it's actually narrow enough that you can touch both sides at once, which makes it quite difficult for an army to invade. Then we've got the mountaintop rocks. You see that sort of red colour? And they've actually built into the rock to make their cities, including Petra, which, interestingly enough, is the same Greek derivative as the name that Jesus gave to Peter, meaning rock. These guys just believed that nobody was ever going to be able to penetrate their walls. The bitterness that Esau felt against his brother for taking his birthright and blessing was passed down until it was no longer just brother against brother, but nation against nation. They became like the sort of Montagues and Capulets, each generation carrying the hatred of the last. In Amos 1.11, we learn that in Edom, Esau's anger raged continuously and his fury flamed unchecked. The Edomites even joined in with the Babylonians in the destruction of Israel under King Nebuchadnezzar II. It's a bit of a mouthful, that one. Obadiah writes, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day that you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. I recently saw an advert for a smartphone and it had this kind of function that removes photo bombers from your pictures. The clip demonstrates how this works and then the voiceover just goes, ta-da, it's perfect, just like your memories and how you want to remember them. Sometimes when I read the Bible, I come across verses like this where God might be talking about destroying a group of people and I kind of want to treat them like that photo bomber that's spoiling my otherwise perfect picture. My mind would happily do the sort of magic eraser thing and just forget all about it. This renders the scriptures easier to swallow and it's kind of how I want to remember them. Except that when I do skip over the parts I find difficult to get my head around, 
I'm not perfecting my understanding of God. I'm limiting how much I am willing to let him teach me. Every time I sit in judgment over the Bible, I'm deciding that my own understanding of goodness and justice is better than that of God. Jeff unpacked human ideas of justice versus God's perfect justice brilliantly in last week's talk. So if you missed it, check it out online later. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't wrestle with the difficult passages, but we really can't ignore them or pretend they aren't there either. And for me, this is one of the tough ones, especially as, just as Obadiah's vision saw, the Edomites were desolated. The destruction came about. Can anyone actually think of the last time an Edomite was mentioned in the Bible? The last recorded Edomite was actually King Herod, the same person that ordered the mass murder of every boy under the age of two when he heard that a king had been born to the Jewish people. He was the last man standing in this near-extinct nation and now he's sitting on the throne over the rival nation with hundreds of years of hostility between them. His hatred was more than just a sort of fear of a new king. He had an ancient vengeance on his shoulders, which fueled that desperation to find and extinguish the threat that Israel posed once again in Jesus' birth. Notice how unresolved anger between people just carries on. He may have been thinking that he had the last word in this Jacob-Esau rivalry, but only Jesus is worthy of the throne. So while it might be somewhat obscure to us now, the book of Obadiah was extremely significant to the Jewish people then. It gave them hope. They were suffering grievously under the Babylonians. And God was saying to them, I've not forgotten you. He was saying, I'm going to keep that promise that I made to Abraham when I said that I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. So that's their story. Let's move on to Act 2, our story. So in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So what can we learn for ourselves from the book of Obadiah? I think there's several things, but today I really want to focus on a choice that I think we're presented with when we read that book. And that is, do we stand on God's promises or on our pride? Proverbs 13.10 tells us where there is strife, sort of like anger between people, there is pride. And Obadiah's message for the Edomites exemplifies this. When we look at Jacob and Esau's story, we see one brother whose pride fueled an anger that was so strong he wanted his brother dead. Esau's pride was passed down through the generations and it's central to the book of Obadiah. Verses three and four say, the pride in your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home among the heights. You who say to yourselves, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like an eagle, though you make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down declares the Lord. 
And that's actually a motif that runs throughout the Bible. Whether it's the Tower of Babel or King Saul or the Pharisees, we see it time and again. One person or a group of people tries to exalt themselves. They put their faith in their own abilities and they seek to glorify themselves above God. And in that so doing, they set themselves against him. I heard one preacher described pride as being like a game of tennis. When we are determined to swing our racket in our own strength, we're inviting God to be our opposition. And he will win in straight sets every time. Edom never chose to give up their pride and humble themselves. And in the end, their endless gloating over Israel as they watched them suffer proved to be their ultimate downfall. The other brother, meanwhile, is pretty imperfect too, I have to add. He sought to live under and claim God's promises for himself. If Jacob stopped at nothing until he received God's blessing and inherited not just the human birthright from his earthly father, but the kingdom inheritance of the promises that God made to Abraham, they were both Abraham's grandsons, but Esau chose to stand on his own pride. Jacob chose to stand on the promises of God. And each one of us here today has a very similar choice to make in our own lives. If you've been hanging around church for a while, you might have heard people say phrases like becoming a Christian or giving your heart to Jesus or turning away from your old life to follow Jesus. And as Christians, we've recently celebrated Easter when we remember Jesus giving up his own life to take on himself all of our shame and pride and brokenness. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life. And that is the promise that is open to each and every one of us here today. If we choose to lay down our reliance on our own strength and abilities, to turn away from trusting our perceived goodness or greatness, and to scorn our pride, we can offer up, we can accept the offer that is offered out to us of eternal life and life to its fullness here on earth when we trust in Jesus. And in the same way, the kingdom inheritance is open to us should we choose to accept this birthright that Jesus won by his sacrifice. We only have to choose whether we're going to live by faith or by our perceived might. I know all too well how it is so easy to fall into that pride trap. I'm kind of addressing myself probably more than anyone when I say that we may at times in our life need to repent of pride and just fall on our knees again at the foot of the cross. There will be an opportunity to respond to this at the end if you feel prompted. Okay, we're coming into land now. Let's jump right into Act 3, his story. Jesus tells the Pharisees in John 5, 39, that they have spent their lives poring over the scriptures, that's the Psalms or the ancient law or the prophets, which includes Obadiah, because they believe that in those texts, they will find life, but they neglect to see that those very same scriptures point to him. In other words, the books of the Old Testament 
bear witness to Jesus' coming and tell us something to do with who he is and what he would one day come to do. I'm going to share a secret with you now. And I kind of trust that you're not going to go telling our kids. (laughs) Rob and I, a few years ago, set up email addresses for our children. And the idea is, like, we're pretty rubbish at keeping up with it, actually. But the idea is that if they say something pretty cute or profound or funny, or if we've just shared a really nice memory together, then actually we just ping them off a quick message. And one day, when they turn 18... They're going to get the email address and the password and they get to read all that stuff through. And as I was asking the Holy Spirit to open up my eyes to Obadiah, I was reminded of these email addresses. And I thought, actually, you know, I write an email to one of my children and I feel delighted. I sort of imagine how they might feel, you know. I kind of picture the look on the face and what they might actually be going through as they read that email. And I realised that even though Obadiah had a specific message for a specific group of people, Jesus knew that one day we'd be sat here today, we'd be looking at Obadiah, and he also knew what he was about to go through when it came to everything he had to do to win us that inheritance into his kingdom that we can now claim. There are other places in the Old Testament that basically just tell Jesus' story mirrored through the lives of the people that are written about. And it's kind of like with heart-pounding clarity. But Jesus' name and story are whispered throughout the Bible. Jesus is the true hidden gem in any Old Testament text. So while Obadiah overtly speaks about God's wrath against pride in humanity, Verse 17 suddenly says, there shall be those who escape, saying that Mount Zion will be holy. And then again in verse 21, that we are told that those who have been saved will go up to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is just kind of used as a picture of God's eternal city, a lot of the time in the Old Testament particularly. But how do they escape? How is it that there are people who are saved when we all are plagued with pride. If we look at verse 7, Obadiah says, those who eat your bread will lay a trap out for you. If we think back to Jesus' final meal with his closest friends, we remember that the very last thing that Judas did before betraying Jesus is share his bread. He even identifies his traitor, that's Jesus, as the one who dips his bread in the bowl. If we then skip down to verse 11, Obadiah sort of describes this list of violent crimes against his people. And one of them is that he he says that the Edomites watch as people are casting lots over Jerusalem. I'm not saying this is a kind of doctrinal sort of cornerstone here, but I do think that Jesus invites us to wonder with him about this stuff. And when I was reading those words, there was one moment which just struck me. I was reminded really sharply of that moment when the soldiers are at the foot of the cross and they're casting lots over Jesus' garments. And the reason I'm sort of, that little bell rung for me, is that actually Psalm 22 uses the exact same phrase about casting lots. And that whole psalm is just 
seeped in prophecy. It, basically, if you've got time this week, go and play Jesus on the cross bingo. Read through Psalm 22 and you will see just time and again that references to what's going to happen on the crucifixion are foreshadowed. It's incredible. You see, Esau's pride led to the Edomites feeling at liberty to ransack and divide up the sort of trophies of Israel between them when they're under attack. And it was misplaced pride that allowed the soldiers to think that they could mock and scorn our Lord and cast lots for his garments. But as we read in Philippians, it was Jesus's humility in allowing himself to take on the form of a man to be broken and submitting his life that made it possible for any one of us to be able to take refuge in him and saved from our own pride. In other words, they that are saved that go up to Zion that Obadiah speaks of are those of us that renounce that Esau-like pride within and accept that only Jesus' sacrifice can save them. We, like Jacob, can stand on God's promises instead of our own pride. And then the most clear reference to Jesus is right at the end of verse 21. It says, and it's a promise, that the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is where we see the ultimate fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham, that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through him. His grandson Jacob goes after that same blessing and promise And he has 12 sons, one of whom is the ancestor of Jesus himself, through whom we are all blessed. This verse promises that we will see the victory of Jesus that he won in his resurrection when he returns and his kingdom, which is already breaking through on earth, will finally reign. So when I was preparing and praying over what I'd share this morning, I wondered if there might be an invitation to us all to spend some time in the presence of the Lord, just seeking out where there might be some pride in our hearts. If we're looking around us and there's kind of strife and struggle in relationships, we might want to ask him if that's at the root of it. And the other thing was whether we've just developed a blind spot to any kind of self-reliant thinking that neglects to see the goodness and greatness of God in our lives. And I also wondered if there was anyone here this morning who's been waiting for the fulfilment of a promise of God in their lives. If you, like Abraham, or the people of Israel, are feeling a bit disillusioned or starting to lose hope, he wants to remind you he will never let his promises fail. He wants to meet with us and to heal the pain caused by that brokenness, caused by hurt in relationships, and to reveal more of the wonder of who he is, the majesty and the awesomeness of our God, and then to offer us afresh the inheritance in his kingdom that Jesus has won for us. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. Why not come along and visit us? We gather at three services across two sites on a Sunday and meet during the week in small groups across the city. More information on both of these can be found on our website. Thanks for listening and God bless.